Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF public media show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sussingham, host of Florida Matters. You can hear Florida Matters Tuesday evenings at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7 or streaming on WUSFnews.org. Well, WUSF has an occasional series on local art and on Florida Matters. We're touring some interesting museums around the Tampa Bay area. Support for Florida Matters comes from the National Foundation for Transplants. Right now, hundreds of Tampa residents need an organ transplant they can't afford. You can join the National Foundation for Transplants Operation Second Chance at transplants.org to learn how to help give someone a second chance at life. We have in the studio with us the reporters that took a tour through some of our area's most interesting art museums and brought us back the sights and sounds and impressions from their visits. WUSF reporter and Florida Matters producer Stephanie Colombini is here. Hi. WUSF reporters Daylina Miller and Kathy Carter. Hi. Hey. Thanks for being here. So, Stephanie Colombini, you reported on glass art at the Morian Art Center? Yes. um, So, it In my reporting for another story I was doing on private museums, which is also in the show, it came across from people I was talking to that this area is a hub for glass art, glass collections. Um, I had always been to uh, the Chihuly collection, so I knew about that and what was going on at the Morian Hot Shop. But now there's the Imagine Museum that just opened up in downtown St. Petersburg, also about studio glass. I learned Sarasota has like 200 glass collectors in two zip codes. It's huge down there. What's the appeal of glass? Um, From what, you know, what I think personally and what people talked about, it's like, you don't just see it. It's an experience. You're looking through it and seeing how the colors and shapes are molding into each other. And it, it's glass is such a complicated art form that I think there's a little bit of mystery to it. And people are really fascinated just watching this molten hot glass. It's glowing on the end of a rod come to life and, and become this totally new creation. A element of danger, too, I yeah. guess. Because oh, gosh. it is... Dangerous to make in there, some ways. The glass blowers are working near furnaces that are 2,000 degrees. You know, you're working oh. with fire. They get burned all the time. And one wrong move and hours of work can come crashing down to the floor. That's so. Another thing, it's so fragile. It's yeah. so delicate. I think when you're looking at some of the artworks, I mean, I know in the Imagine Museum, there was this chair that was made of all these tiny woven glass tubes, and it looked like a life-size chair, and you're just thinking, oh my God, if anyone sat on that thing, it would come shattering to the ground. So I think that does add to the experience, too. It's kind of a new thing. Um, In the last 50 years, so glass obviously has been around for centuries, but it was 
definitely considered more of a, a functional thing. You know, even when it was beautiful, you'd have these beautiful bowls or vases or the stained glass windows and all the, you know, Gothic churches right. around the world. But it always served an additional purpose. And then in the 60s in America, um, just this past century, is when what's known as the studio glass movement kind of formed. And it started to become known, you know, just making glass artwork for the sake of art. There was no purpose, uh, you know, a useful purpose necessarily, just a beautiful sculpture or something. And that really has taken off around the world now. What did you think of the museum? I mean, did it give you a new appreciation? It did. I guess I'd said, you know, I've been to the Chihuly Museum and I love the big, you know, flower-like bowls and, and things like that. But at the Imagine Museum, it's really... Half the stuff there, you're like, that's glass? I mean, it looked like matted stone or it looked like, you know, real flowers in a globe, but actually they were tiny little glass flowers. You know, so just a lot of different ways other than the kind of typical swirly colors in a bowl thing. It was like totally things I have never seen before. How expensive is it? I mean, could you get an original piece like from a known artist um, for less than you would an art in a different media? Um, I can't necessarily compare it to other art forms, but I know it is expensive. I mean, um, glassblowers were telling me some really good works can sell for, you know, even in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, at the Morian Hot Shop, they have, uh, you know, a small gift shop and stuff. And you can buy like a, a cute little fish that a local glassblower has created for 45 bucks. But mm-hmm. if you want the real pieces of art, you're going to have to spend big money for it. One of the glassblowers was joking with me during our interview that he, like, his only glass collection is, like, broken bits of glass. Really? Yeah. That yeah. He's, yeah. If it does, if it fails and it shatters on the floor, then you can get it for cheap. Then he can take it. Uh, Kathy? Now, Robin, you asked earlier, um, how long has glass art been around? I think that it has been around for quite some time. It's just that I'm not so sure it's been given the elevation other mm. art forms have had. And now with St. Petersburg being such a, a microcosm of all these glass artists, perhaps it's ready for its moment now that the Imagine Museum is open and the Craft Museum is about to open because, wow, it really does take a lot of craftsmanship to be able to create works of art in glass. And, and I was there with Stephanie taking the photos and doing the video for her piece. So, you know, one of the things I was amazed by, how, how they have to mount some of these creations. It's not like going to, uh, you know, the Dali where my, you know, where I reported on my story um, where, you know, you're putting up big pieces of canvas or photographs. I mean, it takes a special kind of skill to do that as well. But you have these I mean, I, I can't even imagine how heavy some of these pieces are. They're massive. Some of them are suspended from the ceiling, um, special lighting. So it's not only... Um, and they're ex- breakable. Right. So it's not <laughs> it's only... kind of terrifying ex- to think about. Absolutely. And so it's not only an expensive art form to get into, but it's also a very expensive art to transport and to mount in museums for people to enjoy. So, Daylina, you went to the Dali Museum because Clyde Butcher, the photographer, had an exhibit there. And I, I have coveted one of his black and white, large-scale, iconic photographs of Florida for so long. I don't have one, but I would love it. So what was what was he like? He's an older photographer. Um, he's known for his photographs of um, the Everglades and Big Cypress. Like you said, black and white photography is his specialty, and he really brings Floridians into these places and, and really brings them to life. And, you know, he's an environmental activist as well, so he's using his photography to portray the issues that these places 
places um, are facing and His the things. photographs make you appreciate uh, the outdoors so much more, too, I think. That's they, a big way that he's an activist. They really do. They they showcase that natural beauty mm-hmm. of Florida, sort of that, that that hidden beauty, the things that we don't see. You know, we're used to the beaches and the palm trees and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, he really gets out there in these you know, these waders and, you know, up to his waist in water and he's taking photos and he's waiting hours for the right lighting and for the right opportunities and the right wildlife to to appear before him. So in this case, the Dolly Museum reached out to him and they were like, hey, we really love your work. We want to add an extra uh, added element to the museum. We have so many pieces of Dolly's work here. We want to send you to Spain and the Catalonian coast and we want you to photograph not only some of the places that Dolly himself lived lived and visited, but these these features that inspired Dolly's paintings, these very specific beaches, very specific rock formations. You know, we look at Dolly's work and, you know, we understand it's surrealism. It's very bizarre. It's very, uh, you know, it's not realistic uh, in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of real landscapes that he's painting. That inspired you, him. Absolutely. Real beaches, real rock formations, real places, um, you know, that, that Dolly was inspired by. And so Clyde went out to those places I, they believe he spent three weeks you know waiting for the right you know moments and, and spending a lot of time on beaches and hunting down these rock formations and, and taking these photos and having them displayed at the museum they'll be there through uh through november and it's just he's an incredibly humble person um very very talented um but not not full of himself not condescending he's a very you know he knows that his work is appreciated and he's very grateful that people appreciate it and i think he was a very um honored to be able to go to Spain and and bring Dolly's homeland to life for people that love going to the museum here. So what was it like having those next to the paintings that were inspired by these landscapes? Did it help? Did it help you understand a little bit about his painting? I think so. They're sort of in their own exhibit. So they're not, it's not like this rock formation is being mounted next mm-hmm. to the rock formation that Dolly painted. Right. There are little side cards on the, you know, next to each painting that sort of explain, you know, how it relates to the paintings uh, and more on Dolly's side of the museum. Um, but, but it's, it, I just I had no idea that some of his paintings were in, were truly inspired by the places that he lived and visited. You know, you think of them as sort of these dreamlike uh, interpretations that came from his mind. That, that came he made right out up. of his head, right? Absolutely, and it's not the case. So much was from the actual place where he lived on the coast. Was it on the coast? Absolutely, yeah, the Mm -hmm. Catalonian coast. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's just, and he took pictures of Dolly's house and places that he actually lived to. So, I mean, you know, there are a lot of Dolly fans in this area. You go to the museum, but you see the same paintings over and over again. So having exhibits like Clyde Butcher's there give you a reason to come back over and over again. And the supplement, uh, you know, the art that's there all the time to give us additional insight into Dolly's mind and into his work. I remember from visiting the Dolly um, that um, during the audio tour, they have they mentioned that Dolly had said that he could like memorize, like that he had this perfect picture of the exact formations of the rocks on the beaches. Uh, Catechase, I think, is the hometown, and that yeah, that he had this perfect memory of you know who knows how true that is, but he really identified strongly with that landscape and um, the paintings that he's done of his hometown are definitely more like impressionist and stuff kind of before he got into the really wacky stuff. I remember in your interview that I liked with Clyde Butcher, just that idea of how can black and white 
compare to the wild colors of Dali. And Clyde said that he think he like knew his that if he tried in color photography, it wouldn't compare. He I think said he, black and white. He said it, it would be a disaster. Be, actually, yeah, he said it, it would be a disaster. <laughs> it would right. have had to be black and white yeah. because you just cannot. You you can't rise up to Dali's use of color. Right. And so because he, he's a very, very colorful painter. And to that, yeah, that was very, very striking. And it was really interesting, too, because, you know, uh, Clyde Butcher did a lot of, of film photography. He still uses film quite a bit. This was uh, his first big project where he went out and used uh, DSLR, um, a digital uh, camera. Really? Uh, because there's so many, you know, when you're in these landscapes, um, you know, the Catalonian coast, it's a, it's a desert. Like, you don't think of it as being a desert, but it's a desert, you know, sand and, and, and cacti and those sorts of things. And there are a lot of things that can go wrong with uh, using film, you know, sand getting in and destroying the film. You have to be able to change the film out in the environment for taking, you know, hundreds of photos. So he, he, he thought that using digital would be best in this case because he wouldn't have to change out film and risk ruining it when he's camping out, like, on these beaches and, and doing these things to take these photos. And so so, um, so not only was it his first time um, for a major project using digital, um, you know, but it, what was really interesting is, you know, when I pulled him aside uh, to talk to him after, you know, the little run through that we did of his We exhibit, should mention Daylene is a photographer as well. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, you know, we talked about, you know, I asked if I could get a photo with him. And, you know, of course, on, you know, I had my DSLR camera with me to take some nicer photos. But, you know, I used my iPhone and he's like, yeah, make sure you go around the exhibit and get some photos with your iPhone, too. He's like, absolutely. And a lot of photographers are sort of perturbed that um, phone cameras are getting better and you know there's sort of this fear that it's going to replace our ability to go out and, and do these freelance projects or you know do you know wedding photo vid, uh, businesses you know but he's like he's really I think a big proponent of the camera that you have on you is, is the best camera and so he told me that in his office he actually has like a four foot photo um, that he took and his favorite thing to do is to bring photographers in and sort of have them fight over whether they think it's a Nike con or a canon that he that he shot it with and he shot it on an iphone 4 really yeah so you know so it's it's very much about the vision of the photographer Mm -hmm. and yes these are tools and sometimes you need certain types of cameras and certain lenses to capture the photos that you want to capture but ultimately it comes down to your vision and your talent and your ability as a photographer this is something kathy i wanted to bring you in on this because your piece was also about a photographer herb snitzer at the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is whether you felt or, or, or Herb Snitzer felt or Clyde Butcher felt that the art of photography was less valued now because everyone has a camera. Everyone carries a camera all the time. And um, I think Herb Snitzer in your piece said something about, I always had a camera around my neck, which was unusual you know, at that time for to walk around the camera around your neck. But now everybody has got a camera all the time. So has it made the art of photography less special? I don't think so. But he did say something that was really interesting at one point um, as we were walking through the gallery at the Museum of Fine Arts. He really wanted to make the distinction that photographers do not take pictures. He said, you take a bath, you take a shower, you take a walk, you make photographs. Hmm. So he really was keen on making sure 
that distinction was well known. He said, I'm stealing this from Ansel Adams. He was the first one to say that. But uh, yeah, photographers do not take pictures. They make photographs. He was very insistent on making sure that I understood that. Like you make art rather than you take a a painting. Mm -hmm. Right. So tell us a little bit about Herb Snitzer. Sure. Herb Snitzer is a photographer who is based in St. Pete now. He moved to St. Pete in 1992. He's originally uh, from Philadelphia. He went to the Philadelphia College of Art. Um, He was drafted for the Korean War in between. So he went to, um, to serve. And when he came back, he finished his degree, and then he moved to New York City. And when he got to New York City, the first thing he did was start to look for uh, photographers. Of course, photographer was photography was such a huge medium back then for advertising. We're talking the Mad Men era at this point. In the 50s. Right. So there was lots of work to be had. Photography was was really big, so there were many famous advertising photographers. So he just started cold calling photographers, asking them if they needed an assistant. So he got work very quickly. And then when he wasn't working, carrying, you know, big lighting around town for other photographers, he was working on his own photography. And he was very drawn to the civil rights movement. We're talking the late 50s, early 60s. He is white. And the reason he said that he, he, he's been asked, you know, why you, a, a Jewish white guy, so interested in civil rights, and it was because his parents were pogromed out of the Ukraine. So he grew up very poor in Philadelphia, and so he really had an affinity for people who just weren't looked upon as in society as having the same rights. Mm-hmm. So that had a, his parents had a big effect on his worldview. So he took a lot of pictures of um, civil rights marches in New York. And again, when he was in New York, it was the late 50s, early 60s. So it coincided with the civil rights movement. Um, And he also stumbled into the Greenwich Village jazz scene. Mm -hmm. There was a jazz club, a music club on every block in Greenwich Village during this time. Um, He said his only regret was not photographing Bob Dylan, who was... Right, understandable. Lot, doing, doing a lot of music yeah. in Greenwich Village that at the time. That would be a big regret. <laughs> and which brings us to this um, exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts because that is of jazz, his photographs of jazz musicians. It's right. it's two parts. He's got some photos of his civil rights um, work, and marches and protest, and then a lot of it is his jazz photography as well. Yeah, so he stumbled into a jazz club. He was blown away and became a huge jazz fan. So he started going to jazz clubs every night, and he eventually got a a job at Metronome Magazine, which was a huge jazz publication at the time, and he was photo editor. So he took all the greats, Louis Armstrong, Nina Simone, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis. And you you got him talking. He got to know those people a little bit and kind of told us some tidbits. When I went to the exhibit just as, you know, a museum patron, um, I was really struck by the photos. And I thought to myself, what happened that day? You know, and that's how I approached it when I pitched the story to my boss and to and to Herb. I want you to stand in front of a photo and tell me what was happening that day. What did you talk about? Yeah. But what happened that day? And so I got some really good stories that way about learning a little bit more about the artists. So we were able to share that with the audience, which is it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. And in your story, you play the the music mm-hmm. of that musician behind when you're talking about it. It's very good. Thank yeah, you. Yes. I enjoyed it. All of your pieces are good. Thank you all very much for doing this. It's not easy to um, to do a story about visual art for the radio. 
but um, <laughs> but that's why we also have job. our website so we can put up those photos right. and videos and people right. can check out you know check those out it was also a fun challenge too like you said how do you make a story about visual art interesting for radio and I think we were all really challenged to do that and it was a great opportunity and lots of fun for all of us well they are great and so check those out on our website. Go to WUSFnews.org and we've got the photographs and the videos and music. And music. And music. So, All right. Thank you all very much. I've been speaking to Kathy Carter and Dalina Miller and Stephanie Colombini. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. Robin. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Listen to Florida Matters on the radio Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7 online WUSFnews.org. I'm Robin Sessingham. Come back next week for another episode of Florida Matters More and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher.